0: than when it is in the greatest peace and prosperity. To look indeed only on the outside of them gives a terrible, undesirable prospect. But to see faith and love to God working effectually under them all, to see comforts retained, yea, consolations abounding, holiness prompted, God glorified, the world condemned, the souls of men profited, and at length triumphed over all. This is beautiful and glorious. It may also be observed that the Apostle takes most of these instances, if not all of them, from the time of the persecution of the church under Antiochus, the king of Syria, in the days of the Maccabees. And we may consider concerning this season, one, that it was after the closing of the canon of Scripture, or putting of the last hand unto writings by divine inspiration under the Old Testament. Wherefore, as the apostle represented these things from the notoriety of fact, then fresh in memory, and it may be some books then written of those things, like the books of the Maccabees, yet remaining, yet as they are delivered out Unto the church by whom they proceeded from divine inspiration. 2. That in those days wherein these things fell out, there was no extraordinary prophet in the church. Prophecy, as the Jews confess, ceased under the second temple. And this makes it evident that the rule of the word and the ordinary ministry of the church is sufficient to maintain believers in their duty against all oppositions whatever. 3. That this last persecution of the church under the Old Testament by Antiochus was typical of the last persecution of the Christian church under Antichrist, as is evident to all that compare Daniel 8, 10-14, 23-25, 11-36-39 with that of the revelation in sundry places. And indeed, the martyrologies of those who have suffered under the Roman Antichrist are a better exposition of this context than any that can be given in words. End of quote. Women received their dead raised to life again. Hebrews 11.35 some have complained because this clause is not placed at the end of verse 34, urging that it belongs here much more appropriately than it does at the beginning of verse 35, being a fitting climax to the miraculous achievements of faith enumerated in verses 33 and 34. While it be true that the particular item here before us belongs to the same class of miracles found in the preceding verse, yet personally we regard it as suitable for placing at the head of what follows in verses 35-38, to for it forms a suitable transition from the one to the other. And in this respect, those women passed through the sufferings of a sore bereavement before they had their beloved children restored to them a reward for their kindness unto God's servants. Women received their dead raised to life again. The historical reference is to what is recorded in 1 Kings 17:22 to 24 and 2 Kings 4, verses 35-37. How those remarkable cases show us once more that there is nothing too hard or difficult for faith to effect when it works according to the revealed will of God. But what is the spiritual application of this unto us today? Is it not faith seeking the Spirit's renewal of languishing graces, the practical heeding of that word, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die? Revelation 3.2 Or, to take a more extreme case, Is it not a word of hope to the backslidden Christian who has, to all appearances, lapsed back into a state of unregeneracy? Is it not faith's response to that word addressed to Christians, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light? Ephesians 5.14 And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, Verse 35. It is very touching to remember that the hand of which first penned those words had taken a prominent part in inflicting torture upon the saints of God. Acts 8.3.9.1. But by grace he was now a sharer of them. Second Corinthians 11.24-27. The word torture here signifies were racked those Old Testament saints were fastened to a device and then a wrench was turned which caused their joints to be pulled out of their sockets, a method of torture frequently resorted to by Fiendish Romanists when seeking to force Protestants to recant. By this fearful form of suffering, the graces of God's people were tested and tried, not accepting deliverance. It was offered to them but at the price of apostasy. two alternatives were set before them, disloyalty to the Lord, or enduring the most excruciating suffering, surrender of the truth, or being tortured by devils in human form. Freedom from this torture was offered to them in return for forsaking their profession. This is expressly affirmed of Eliezer and his seven brethren in 2 Maccabees. Yea, they were not only offered freedom from tortures and death, but promised great rewards and promotions which they steadfastly refused. The principal design of Satan in setting torture before God's saints is not to slay their bodies, but is to destroy their souls. Space has always been given to the victim for consideration and recantation. Entreaties have been mingled with threats to induce a renouncing of their profession. Thus, the real test presented was which did these saints of God esteem more highly the present comfort of their bodies or the eternal interests of their souls. Let it be remembered that they were men and women of like passions with us. Their bodies were made of the same tender and sensitive flesh as ours are, but such was the care they had for their souls. So genuine was their faith and hope in a better resurrection that they listened not to the appeals and whinings of the outward man. The same issue is drawn, though, in another form today. Alas, what countless millions of people lose their souls eternally for the temporary gratification of their vile bodies? Read which do you esteem the more highly, your body or your soul? Your actions supply the answer, which receives the more thought, care, and attention, which is denied and which is catered unto, not accepting deliverance. The word for deliverance here is commonly translated redemption in the New Testament. Its usage in this verse helps to a clearer understanding of that important term, and emphasizes the difference between it and ransom. Ransom is the paying of the price which justice requires, but redemption is the actual emancipation of the one for whom the price was paid. These saints refused to accept a temporal redemption or deliverance, because to have done so on the terms that was proffered to them, would have met the renunciation of their profession, apostasy, from God. It was through faith they made this noble decision. It was love for the truth which caused them to hold fast, that which was infinitely dearer to them than an escape from bodily suffering. They had bought the truth at the price of turning their backs on the world and their former religious friends, and bringing down upon themselves the scorn and hatred of them, and now they refuse to sell the truth Proverbs 23, 23, out of a mere regard to bodily ease, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. That last cause shows the ground of their steadfastness. The primary force of the expression here is a figurative one, as the verse as a whole clearly shows. They were offered a resurrection on the condition of their recantation, namely, a resurrection from reproach to honor, from poverty to riches, from pain to ease and pleasure. It was a resurrection from the physical torture which threatened them. Compare Hebrews 11.19 But their hearts were occupied with something far, far better than being raised up to earthly comforts and honors. Their faith anticipated that morning without clouds when their bodies would be raised in glory, made like Christ's, and taken to be with Him forever. It was the hope of that which supported their souls in the face of extreme peril and sustained them under acute sufferings that they might obtain a better resurrection. In passing, let it be noted that God had said before the Old Testament saints the hope of resurrection. They were not nearly so ignorant as the dispensationalists make them out to be. In fact, were far wiser than most of our moderns. Resurrection has always been the top stone in the building of faith. Job 19, 25 and 26 that which promised eternal reward, and that which gave life unto their obedience. A further proof of this fact is found in Acts 24, 14-16. The faith of the fathers embraced the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. That glorious resurrection will more than compensate for any bodily denials or bodily sufferings which the Christian makes or experiences for Christ's sake. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. Hebrews 11.36. This verse supplies further details of what some of the Old Testament saints were called upon to suffer for their fidelity to the truth. Sufferings which have been frequently duplicated during this Christian era. We are here informed of the various methods which the enemies of God employed in the afflicting of His people. No stone was left unturned in the persevering and merciless efforts to produce a denial of the faith. While these things are harrowing to our feelings, yet they also serve to make manifest the sufficiency of divine grace to support its recipients under most painful trials, and should evoke thanksgiving and praise unto him that is able to make the weak stand up under the fiercest assaults of the enemy. And others had trial of cruel mockings. Let us, when we are reproached for Christ's sake and ridiculed because of our adherence to God's truth, called to mind that this was the mildest form of suffering which many who went before us on the pilgrim path were called upon to endure. The sneers and unkind words of our foes are not worthy of a pang in comparison with the far sore pains which other believers have had to bear. It has ever been the portion of God's servants and people to be derided, reproached, and insulted see Galatians 4.29, 2 Chronicles 36.16, Jeremiah 20.7, Lamentations 3.14, and my reader, if we are not being mocked, sneered at, scoffed at, it is because we are too lax in our ways and too worldly in our walk. Human nature has not changed, Satan has not changed, the world has not changed, and the more Christ-like is our life, the more we shall drink in our measure of the cup he drank from, and scourgings, the references to the lashings of their backs with whip cords of wire, which were most painful to experience, for they lacerated the flesh, drew blood, and macerated the body. It was not only a painful form of suffering, but a most humiliating one as well, for scourgings were reserved for the basest and most degenerate of men. The Lord Jesus was subjected to this form of ignominy and suffering from His enemies. Matthew twenty seven twenty six, And so also were His apostles. Acts 5 is true that we are now for the immediate present spared these corporeal scourgings but there is such a thing as being lashed by the tongue and harrowed in our minds nevertheless happier we Matthew 5:10 to 12 if we are so honored as to experience a little fellowship with the sufferings of Christ but let us see well to it that we do not retaliate Ponder carefully and turn into earnest prayer. Psalm 38, verses 12 to 14. Also, First Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. Yea, moreover of bonds. The references to cords, chains, manacles, and fetters binding them fast, so that they could not run away. In this item, we see how the excellent of the earth. Psalm 16:3 were basely dealt with as though they had been the vilest of malefactors. Does your heart go out and pity to them, dear reader? Ah, uh, what if you are bound even now with something far, far worse than outer and material ropes and chains? Multitudes are held fast by habits they cannot break. Their souls are fettered by iniquities from which they cannot free themselves. Sin has taken them captive and has full dominion over them. Has it over you? Or has Christ set you free, not from the hateful presence of indwelling sin, but from its reigning power? Daily ought we to pray and strive against everything which limits us spiritually. And imprisonments which was a lot commonly apportioned to robbers and murderers. Here again we see the saints of God treated as the offscoring of the earth. And let it be remembered that the prisons of those days were of a far different order from the comfortable buildings in which criminals are now incarcerated. One has only to read the experience of Jeremiah 38, 11-13. To get some idea of the meaning of this word in our text, God's children were thrown into dark and damp dungeons, far below the level of the earth, unheated, unpaved, unilluminated. One cannot read this clause in our text without thinking of Dear Bunyan, ah, my reader, nothing but a real faith in the living God could have enabled those believers to have remained faithful unto death. The whole of the verses which have been before us exhibit the efficacy and sufficiency of a spiritual faith to endure the worst that men and devils could inflict upon his favored possessors. Is yours only an easy-chair faith? Chapter 26 The Pinnacle of Faith, part 2, Hebrews 11, 37 and 38. There has been no greater instance of the degeneracy of human nature and its likeness to the devil than in the fearful fact that so many who have occupied prominent positions, magistrates, ecclesiastical dignitaries, kings and emperors, were not content to take the bare lives of true worshippers of God by the sword, but invented the most fiendish methods of torture to destroy them. That educated men and women in high places, that those professing the name of Christ should conduct themselves like savages, that their rage against the excellent of the earth should express itself in such villainy and inhumanity, is a most dreadful demonstration of Human depravity, when the hand of God is withdrawn. With what infinite patience does the Most High bear with the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? But why should God allow many of His dear children to encounter such terrible experiences? Among other answers, the following may be suggested. First, for the more thorough trial of his champions that their faith, courage, patience, and other graces might be more manifest. Second, to seal or ratify more plainly the truth which they profess. Third, to encourage and strengthen the faith of their weaker brethren. Fourth, to give them more sensible evidence of what Christ endured for them. Fifth, to cause them to perceive the better, the torments of hell. If those whom God loves are permitted to endure such grievous and painful trials, what must we understand of those torments which the wrath of God inflicts upon those whom He hates? The teaching of Scripture upon the various reasons why God calls upon His children to suffer at the hands of the openly wicked, or as is more often the case, from those professing to be His people, is full of valuable instruction and calls for prayerful pondering. One of the advantages gained from such an exercise is the plainer perception of the very real and radical difference there is between that spiritual and supernatural faith which is possessed by God's elect and that national and natural faith which is all that millions of empty professors have. Should it please God to remove his restraining hand and permit open and fierce persecution to once more break forth upon the two followers of the Lamb, the difference just mentioned would be made apparent, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, the stony ground here is soon offended, Matthew 13, verse 21, or as Luke 8.13 expresses it, fall away, but different far is it with the good ground here. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.7 That faith, which is the gift of God, endures to the end, The testing of that faith, the fiery trial thereof, serves the better to make manifest the divine origin of it. Only that faith which has come from God is able to endure the testing of God. Just as it is in the furnace that genuine gold is most quickly distinguished from tinsel, so it is under sore trials that the difference between spiritual and natural faith becomes the more apparent. Like much of the imitation jewelry of the day, the creature faith of empty professors may look more glittering and be more bulky and have more attraction for the outward eye and be better calculated to adorn its possessor than does the genuine faith of God's elect, which is often small in size, dull in appearance and lacking in attractiveness to the human beholder. Yes, dear reader, it is the fiery child which puts to the truth the kind of faith we really possess. Let the two faiths, that natural faith which man originates and exercises by an act of his own will, and that spiritual faith which is the gift of God and which man can no more exercise of himself than he can create a world, be placed side by side in the crucible, let the burning flame try which is the genuine metal. Let the hot fire play around the both, and the false faith, like imitation gold, will soon melt away into a shapeless mass of base metal. But the true faith will come forth uninjured by the fire, having lost nothing but what it could well spare, the dross with which it has been mixed. See that fact strikingly and solemnly adumbrated in Daniel 3. The furnace of Babylon harmed not the three Hebrews who were cast into it. It merely destroyed their bonds, but it consumed the Babylonians. Verse 22. Let it be duly noted that in 1 Peter 1 verse 7, the apostle, when comparing faith with gold, accredits to the former a higher value. It is much more precious than of gold that perishes. Gold, though its genuineness may be proved by enduring the test of fire, is yet a perishing thing, a thing of the earth, a thing of time. That gold for which men toil so laboriously and sell their souls to acquire is of no avail on a deathbed, still less will it stand any in. A, in Good said in the day of judgment, at death, it has to be left behind, for none can take it with him into the next life. Then how much more precious is that faith which instead of like gold, leaveth its possessor under the wrath of God, will be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. But the point to which we would now direct special attention is not that it is not so much the faith itself as the trial of faith which is more precious than of gold which perisheth. This is clear to the spiritual mind. Trials and temptations are the means which God employs to make manifest to the soul the reality and strength of that faith which he bestows. For There is in every trial and temptation an opposition made to the faith which is in the heart. And trial and temptation, so to speak, threatens the life of faith. How so? Because under the trial, God, for the most part, hides Himself. The light of His countenance is no longer visible. His smile is overcast by a dark providence. Nevertheless, He puts forth a secret power which upholds the soul, otherwise it will sink into utter despair, be swallowed up by the power of unbelief. Here then is the conflict, the trial fighting against faith, and that faith against the trial. Now then, in this trial, under this sharp conflict, in this hot furnace, The spiritual and supernatural faith is not burned or destroyed, but instead grips firmly the promise and the faithfulness of him who has given it. And thus the trial of faith becomes exceedingly precious. It is precious to its possessor when its genuineness is made the more manifest to him. It is precious in the sight of God's people who discern it and derive strength and comfort from what they witness in the experience of a fellow saint who is thus tried and blessed. It is precious in the sight of God Himself who crowns it with His own manifest approbation and puts upon it the seal of His approving smile. But above all things it will be found precious at the final appearing of the Lord Jesus in glory, for then he will be admired in all them that believe. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 10 To suffer the hardest things as well as to do the greatest is all one to faith. It is equally ready for both when God shall require and it is equally effectual in both as God shall strengthen. The performing of spectacular exploits and the enduring of terrible affliction differ almost as much to the flesh as to heaven and hell, but they are one to faith when duty calls. This is very evident from the section of Hebrews 11 which is now before us, verses 33-38, to the closing portion of which is about to engage our attention. At the beginning of this section, we are furnished with a list of the marvels which were wrought by a God-given faith. At the close thereof, we are given a list of fearful sufferings and privations which were patiently and courageously borne by a God-sustained faith. The latter, as much as the former, demonstrates the supernatural character of that faith which is in view throughout our chapter. Yea, forms a most glorious climax thereto. We say that the fearful sufferings experienced by God's people form a blessed climax in the Spirit's unfolding of the life of faith. Those sufferings mark, in fact, the pinnacle of its attainments. Why so? Because they make manifest a heart that is completely subject to God that bows submissively to whatever he is pleased to send, which has been so completely won to him that torture and death are deliberately chosen and gladly preferred to apostasy from him. A meek and quiet spirit is of great price in the sight of God, First Peter 3, verse 4, and nothing more plainly evidences the meekness of the Christian his lying passive as clay in the hands of the potter, as faith's willing acceptance of whatever lot our Father sees fit to appoint us. To be faithful unto death, to have unshakable confidence in the Lord, though He suffers us to be slain, to trust Him when to sight and since it seems He has deserted us, is the highest exercise of all of faith. Ere closing this introductory, let us seek to point out the various actings of faith in times of danger, trial, and persecution. First, faith recognizes that the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth, Revelation 19.6, that He is on the throne of the universe, and doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Daniel 4.35 Yes, dear reader, a spiritual faith perceives that things do not happen by chance, but that everything is regulated by the Lord God. Second, faith recognizes that everything which enters our lives is ordered by Him who is our Father and that our enemies can do nothing whatever against us without his direct permission. The devil could not touch Job nor sift Peter until he first obtained leave from the Lord. Oh, what a sure resting place is there, here for the troubled and trembling heart. Third, faith recognizes that no matter how fiercely Satan may be permitted to rage against us or how sorely men persecute, their malicious efforts will be made to work together for our good. Romans 8.28 Fourth, by mixing itself with God's promises, faith obtains present help, strength, and consolation from God. It derives peace and comfort from that sure word, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, They shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Isaiah 43.2 It counts upon the assurance, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that. Ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 Finally, faith looks away from the present conflict and views the promised rest. It anticipates the future reward and, as it does so, is assured that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18 Such are some of the workings of faith when God's children are called upon to pass through the furnace. They were stoned, they were sewn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Hebrews 11, verses 37 and 38. These verses continue the list of sufferings begun in verse 35. They enumerate the various kinds of persecution to which many of the Old Testament saints were subjected. They are of two types. First, such as fell under the utmost rage of their enemies, enduring a martyr's death. Second, such as to escape death, expose themselves to great miseries which were undergone in this life. It may be helpful at this point for us to raise the question, how are such dreadful sufferings to be harmonized with the divine promises of temporal blessings on those whose ways please the Lord? This Are very fond of emphasizing the temporal character of the Old Testament promises, imagining that the promises of the New Testament are of a greatly superior character. In this, they err seriously. On the one hand, the verses which are now under consideration describe the temporal experiences of some of the most eminent of the Old Testament saints. On the other hand, the New Testament, expressly affirms godliness as promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. First Timothy four verse eight. The answer to our opening query is very simple. Such promises as those in Deuteronomy twenty eight one to six, which still hold good to faith, are to be understood with two exceptions. Unless our sins call down divine chastisement or unless God is pleased to make trial of our graces by afflictions. They were stoned. This form of death was appointed by God Himself to be inflicted upon notorious malefactors. Leviticus 22, verse 2, Joshua 7, 24 and 25. But our text has reference to the satanic perversion of this divine institution. For here it is the enemies of God inflicting this punishment upon his beloved and faithful people. John Owen said, The devil is never more a devil nor more outrageous than when he gets a pretense of God's weapons into his own hands. And of quote. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, suffered death in this form. It is touching to remember that The one who first penned our text himself consented to the stoning of Stephen. Acts 8, verse 1, and later, he himself was stoned at Lystra. They were sawn asunder. This was a barbarous method of execution which the later Jews seemed to have learned from the heathen. There is no record in Scripture of anyone being put to death in this way. The tradition says Isaiah ended his earthly career in this manner, that some of the heroes of faith perished in this way is clear from our text, evidencing the malice of the devil and the brutal rage of persecution. Their endurance of such torture demonstrates the reality and power of the Spirit's support, enabling them to remain true to God and in the midst of their agonies sweetly commit their spirits into His hands to the astonishment of their murderers. How this should stir us up to bear patiently the far smaller trials we may be called upon to encounter. We're tempted. This may be considered two ways, as pointing to an aggravation of their sufferings or as referring to a separate trial of faith. We will take it in both respects, first as signifying an intensification of their other trials. The reference would be to their persecutors setting before them the promise of relief upon their repudiation of the truth, liberty at the price of perfidy. The baits of immunity and advancement were offered to them on the condition that they would abandon their strictness and joined the ranks of the loose livers of that day. We believe that our text also includes the temptings of Satan, seeking to fill their minds with doubts as to God's goodness and power, urging them to recede from the stand they had taken, because they remained resolute, refusing to yield to the insidious demands of their persecutors. They were cruelly butchered, were tempted, may in the second place be contemplated as referring to that life of ease and pleasure which worldly advancement and riches might provide. History solemnly records that numbers of those who courageously endured long and cruel imprisonment and other sore trials, for the truth's sake, during the reign of the papist and bloody Queen Mary of England, yet upon the accession of Queen Elizabeth were freed, elevated to high places, and obtained much wealth and power, denied the power of godliness, and made shipwreck of faith and a good conscience. But those in our text were possessed of a faith like unto that of Moses. Chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, and therefore were enabled to withstand the powerful temptations of the world. Poverty, dear reader is often sent by God upon His people as a merciful means of delivering them from the dangerous snares which wealth entails. We're slain with a sword. There is probably a double reference here. First, to the sword of violence, when persecutors in their fury fell upon the servants and people of God, butchering them for their fidelity. See 1 Samuel 22:18 and 21, 1 Kings 19, verse 10. Second, the sword of justice, or rather injustice, the law being enforced against the saints. Probably this form of death is mentioned last to signify the multitude of martyrs who by their blood sealed up the truth. Literally rendered our text reads, They died in the slaughter of the sword, which denotes the insatiable thirst of the persecutors and the large number of which they felled. Papists have exceeded pagans herein. Witness their cruel massacres in France and other places. Well, may the Holy Spirit represent the poor Babylon as being drunk with the blood of the saints. Revelation 17, verse 6. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, which means they were hounded out of their homes and forced to go forth and exist as they might without any settled habitation. E.W. Bollinger said, They were driven out to share the lot of wild animals and were reduced to wear their skins instead of clothes woven by man. This form of suffering is mentioned here to show, on the one hand, the cruelty of religious persecution and, on the other hand, the mighty sustaining power of faith. What power indeed is this? It was not merely the compulsion such as that which enforced the wandering of society's outlaws. It was rather the deliberate choice like that of Moses in
1: verses 24-26. to